and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me different sayings that mean a lot to me uh, things that I strive for recognizing my responsibility to give back reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say I'm going to break the mold two days after my second injury my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home I ran up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall, no quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me, and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you got to remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. When I'm not recording this podcast, I'm working as a mental performance coach, which gives me the opportunity to work with elite performers in both business and in sport, and I help them cultivate their mindset, unlock their potential. So we focus on how each person can set their mind to create opportunities to win moments, maximize potential, and ultimately enjoy success. And that joy piece is really important to me. So I love what I do for a living. And as a result, I decided, hey, why don't I fire up a podcast so that I can arm myself and arm my community with more knowledge, more wisdom, more gems on how to set your mind. So that's the idea of this podcast. And we're excited that you are listening with us today. Now, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about how you can support the podcast. First of all, you're here, you're listening. Thanks for listening. I know today's guest is going to be great and I know you're going to enjoy it, but we appreciate those that keep uh, listening, write me emails, they text me. Uh, I really do appreciate it and it means the world to me when we find out that this podcast is impacting people even in the slightest bit. But we would love for you to go over to our Patreon homepage where you can help us out. It's patreon.com backslash intentional performers. If you're not familiar with Patreon, they have created a website that helps creators like me generate revenue streams other than the, than the traditional advertising model. So just with $10 a month, you can really help us out and really make us make this podcast even better. And the other way you can help us out is just by sharing this conversation. Share it on social media, send an email to a friend. Uh, let's try to get these people's stories and the way that they've intentionally set their mind out to the world and impact as many people as possible. Also, if you could go over to iTunes and write us a review, it really does help us expand our reach. Now, uh, I want to really present today's guest because he has a bundle of energy. Alex Benayan is somebody who I met out in LA. Cal Fussman, who is a previous guest, connected the two of us. We actually met over breakfast with Larry King. Um, and that is a story for another day. But let me tell you a little bit about Alex and what he has been up to for the last seven years. So he spent the last seven years trying to figure out how the best performers in the world have done it. Like, what are the tricks? What are the secrets? What are the ways that they got to where they are today? So 
Benayan has been listed in Forbes 30 under 30 list, Business Insider's Most Powerful People Under 30. He's contributed to Fast Company, Washington Post, Entrepreneur, TechCrunch. He's been all over the place. Uh, if you haven't met Alex before, and, and you will in this conversation, you will see his energy right from the get-go. This is somebody who is pretty memorable, and he is uh, relentless, and he has a tenaciousness about him, but also a compassionate side to him and a kindness about him that I think we all could use in our life. Um, he is a keynote speaker, uh, and his book, The Third Door, just came out. And Alex was kind enough to send me a copy of it uh, a couple months ago, and I read it literally in five days. Uh, this book is awesome. And Alex shares his story, his journey, but also the journey and the stories of people like Lady Gaga, Bill Gates, Pitbull, uh, Jane Goodall. The list goes on and on. I'm, you know, it, it's nonstop. Larry King, as I mentioned earlier. So he really gets at some of the best performers in the world and unlocks their wisdom and along the way unlocks a lot of his own wisdom. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Alex. When you do, go and buy his book. So you can buy it at thirddoorbook.com. You can also buy it online anywhere you get books. Uh, and Alex will share that with us as well. But thirddoorbook.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter. He is active there at Alex Benayan. And all of that is also in the show notes. But without further ado, so excited to present to you this journeyman, uh, this ambitious young man, uh, and a friend of mine, Alex Benayan. I'm grateful that Cal introduced the two of us. And when you handed me the book uh, weeks ago, I was like, ah, I'm not sure what this is going to be about. And you were explaining the book at, at breakfast. And I was like, okay, sounds interesting. Um, but I, from the moment I started it to the moment I ended, I felt like I was on a journey with you. And so I'm excited to share that journey a little bit. Uh, that means so much, man. No, it's, it's, it's like complete, complete trans, transparency and, and truth that I'm, that I'm speaking. And so I'm excited to go on the next hour, hour and a half. I don't know how long this will be, but to go on a journey with you because I feel like I already have, but I haven't really. So uh, I have a lot of questions that I'll ask along the way. Um, but I would love for you to start by giving people an idea of what it was like for you when you're at your in your dorm room at USC, you're looking up at the ceiling and you sort of have this epiphany to say like, the life that I, or the vision I have for myself is not aligning with where I wanted to go. So take us to your dorm room and those moments that sort of grab you and tell you that maybe I need to shift course or change direction. It started about seven years ago. You know, I was a freshman in college, 18 years old, and I was going through this life crisis. I don't know if you ever gone through the, what do I want to do with my life crisis, but I was going through it pretty hard. And to understand why I was going through this crisis, you have to understand that I'm the son of Jewish immigrants, which pretty much means I came out of the womb my mom cradled me in her arms and then stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. The, 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 so, so I've heard you say that before and I've yeah. heard that in the book. But I'm not the son of Jewish immigrants, but I'm the next generation after that. And okay. Certainly Where's that, your family from? So my grandma is a Holocaust survivor from Hungary. Um, yeah. Other side of the family and more Russian immigrants, but not... Uh, it was a generation above them. So three generations. Sure. Um, and then there's, you know, there's a mixture of, of other stuff in there too. Uh, but I definitely consider myself culturally Jewish and certainly lawyers, doctors, 
you know, uh, it's the whole family. Yeah. You have that in the family, you have that in the neighborhood. Um, but you know, it's interesting because my parents aren't immigrants and I never felt pressure to go into one of those realms. So I'm curious if you could unpack that a little bit more for us as far as, you know, yeah. why, why they thought that way and, and what, why they thought that being a doctor would be the, the way to go. To understand it in a fuller sense, you have to understand that my parents and grandparents came from Iran as refugees because they were being persecuted for their religion as Jews. You know, during the revolution, 1978, they came to America and my grand, my grandma would always tell me, you know, in a revolutions, the government can take your money, they can take your possessions, but they can never take away what you know. And if you can save people as a doctor, you know, they can never take that away from you. So being a doctor wasn't just like a nice little idea. It was my grandparents and parents entire dream for me. And what did your grandparents, what did your grandparents do for a living? And what did your parents do for a living? Um, my grandfather, interestingly enough, and I always was confused by this. He was an entrepreneur. Mm. He wasn't a doctor, but his kids were doctors and lawyers. My, my mom's generation. So I always was confused by that. And it wasn't until I got a much older that I realized that my grandfather was really, really oppressed because of his religion and being an entrepreneur made it about 10 times worse. So when he came to America, I think he had a lot of regrets that he didn't have, you know, a medical degree or something to fall back on. He had to start over all from scratch, even though he was 50 years old. So when I was a kid, I never questioned it. I, you know, a kid wants to make their parents happy and that's what made my parents happy. So I wore scrubs to school for Halloween. I went to pre-med summer camp and it wasn't until I was a freshman in college when I finally had a little time alone that I started to question like what I actually like and what I'm actually interested in. And I remember lying on my dorm room bed, staring at the ceiling and looking over at this stack of biology books and feeling like they were sucking the life out of me. And I was hitting snooze five or six times each morning. And at first I started wondering, you know, am I just being lazy? But then the questions begin to evolve into maybe I'm not on my path. Maybe I'm on a path somebody placed me on and I'm just rolling down. I think, I think there's um. There's something universal there. And you said, you started by saying, I don't know if you've ever had a, a life crisis where, you know, you're starting to think about, is this the path I want to go on? Right. And I'm fortunate because I get to play in three different sandboxes. So I work with high school kids. I work with college athletes. And I work with uh, both people in the corporate world and professional athletes. And I always say that people ask me, like, who do you like to work with the most? And I say, look, each one has its own pluses and minuses and every person's different. So it, it depends on the person, but there is something special about that 18 to 22 year old. Yeah. And I think you hit on it, which is up until they graduate from high school, they are ultimately living a life on other people's terms, right? Whether, and they probably don't know it. I, at least I didn't know it. 
You don't, but you're, you're, you're waking up, you're going to school. You don't get to, I mean, kids cut school, but they don't get to cut school from the moment their alarm goes off. Um, you know, they get to cut school once they go and then they leave. But most people, most kids, they wake up, they go to school, maybe they have an after school activity, then they have dinner, then they do homework, rinse and repeat. And there's not a lot of, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, other people that have worse experiences, um, but let's just call it average, normal childhood would be that. And uh, college gives you the time to choose if you're going to hit the snooze button. Gives you the time to look up at the wall. There's space that occurs in that college environment. It sounds like that space. That word space is so key. And so you, you, you had the space for the first time to self-reflect maybe on your own to be self-aware and to do some deep thinking about where do I want to go in this world? Yeah. And I think space is one of the most critical things in it. You know, it's a word when you said it, it really resonated and it's a word I actually don't use that often, but it resonates a lot because I think one of the most important things in life is to create space. Cause what happens, especially as we become adults and, you know, work in business it's so easy to keep running and running and running because whether we know it or not, what we're actually doing is we're avoiding that space because of subconsciously we're afraid of what that space might tell us. So when I was a freshman in college, it was the first time that without me even knowing that space was created and I started going through this existential crisis of, you know, what am I going to do with my life? Because my entire identity was tied around becoming this doctor. That was my path. And the questions of what I want to do with my life began to evolve into how did all these people who I look up to, how did they do it? How did Bill Gates, when he was, you know, a sophomore in college, sell software out of his dorm room? How did Spielberg, when he was rejected from film school, go on to become the youngest director in Hollywood history? These are the things they don't normally teach you in school. So I very naively just, you know, went to the library and went on Amazon and got a bunch of books looking for answers. I went through business books and self-help books, but eventually I was left empty handed. So that's when I thought, well, if no one's going to write the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not just write it myself? You know, I thought it'd be super easy. I would just call up Bill Gates, interview him, interview everyone else, and I'll be done in a few months. That I thought would be the easy part. The hard part was getting the money to fund this journey. You know, I was buried in tuition payment, all out of bar mitzvah cash. So they had to get a way to make some quick money. So two nights before my freshman year of final exams, I'm in the library doing what everyone does in the library before finals. I'm on Facebook. And on Just my so Facebook, you know, Facebook for me came about like sophomore year of college. And I waited until like, junior year um because i went abroad and i was like oh i should was that still when it was only for college students it was only for college students then and we used instant messenger that was like the way that people connect i am yeah i am but so it's interesting to hear a different dynamic when it comes to facebook um i i want you to continue telling the story of how you how you raise money but i know the answer to that i know the people that are listening don't uh, so we'll get to that because it's a fascinating story. But I want to fast forward to today and then we'll come mm-hmm. back to of course, uh, yeah. then. How do you create space for yourself now? Mm. 
the biggest thing that I do is I don't overbook my schedule, which is really hard, especially when you're in the stage I'm in, like trying to launch a book, um, you know, launch a movement and a mission. But, and this sort of goes back to something I learned in the book from Steve Wozniak about, you know, redefining your definition of success. And one of the things in my definition that I created for myself after meeting Wozniak was that some of the people I admire most, whether it's Warren Buffett or one of my mentors, Elliot Bisno, their schedules are completely empty. Like there's a a really famous clip on, I think it was like, you know, 60 minutes or CNN where someone was interviewing Warren Buffett and they're like, Oh, you must be so busy. And he like takes out his like little pocket calendar and he like flips through it and all the pages are empty except for like one thing per day. And he's like, Nope. Um, And again, it's not for a lack of opportunities or things trying to take up his schedule. It's that he's realized that creating that space, what some people call free time, is actually the core competency of his business Mm -hmm. and of his quality of life too. So if you look at Warren Buffett, every decision he makes that makes a billion dollars or more didn't come from him running meeting meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting. It came from him sitting alone in a room in complete silence with a stack of papers and books in front of him and just reading for hours on end. Now, for everyone, it's different. You know, that's my lifestyle for someone else. You know, the key for them is actually creating space with maybe one of their employees and thinking up big ideas. For everyone, it might be different. But for me, I'm super vigilant to create time in my day and sometimes even the entire day where there's nothing on the calendar and I can actually do some thinking and, you know, I can do some journaling. I can, you know, have the freedom to go, you know, I'm actually going to take the next 30 minutes and instead of, you know, doing emails, I'm going to go take a walk and go sit under a tree and meditate. And what I've learned is that Society makes you feel like that detracts from your productivity. But what I've learned is it actually multiplies your productivity. Because when you get back to doing your tasks, you're 10 times more focused in yourself. Is there anything mechanical that you do uh, habitually to uh, make sure that you are living in that that space or making sure that you're creating that space for yourself? Absolutely. So there's a few things that I have a habit of doing, and there's a few things I use as tools. So the biggest thing that I have a habit of doing that's been every day for the past five years is transcendental meditation twice a day, every morning and every afternoon. And it's really easy because it's just 20 minutes. It's not fancy at all. You can do it on in an airplane. You can do it in a car. I do most of mine. I drive to work. I know you're like supposed to do it in your bedroom right when you wake up, but what I like to do is I'll get in the car, drive to work, park in the parking lot of my office and meditate in the car right before I walk into the office. So that way I'm walking into the office with like a completely clear head, which just feels really nice. Who introduced you to TM, to Transcendental Meditation? So when I was 19, one of the people I met on the journey for the book was Elliot Bisno. 
we started this conference called Summit Series. And what Summit Series is really good at is it takes the kind of thought leaders and business leaders that go to a place like TED, but they also combine it with the kind of activities and ethos of a place like Burning Man. So I'm 19, I'm at Summit Series, and my mind is being blown, and I'm meeting all these people who are like the complete opposite of everyone who I'm hanging out with in college. You know, in college, there's a lot of nervous energy and a lot of, you know, running around. And I went to Summit Series, I'm meeting all these business leaders who are at the same time, like, unbelievably calm and have these big smiles and, you know, have this energy that was very new to me. And I really liked it. And I would just ask them, I'm like, what makes you so happy? What makes you so calm? And like, I'd say like seven out of 10 of them said they did this thing called meditation. And, you know, being the son of like Jewish Persian immigrants, like meditation and therapy are like the devil's work to my family. So I was like, oh my God, that's so weird that you guys all do this. But after, you know, the 50th or 100th person who says they do meditation, I literally did like was just curious. I didn't even want to do it. I was just curious. And I asked one of them for a recommendation on a meditation teacher and they introduced me to a man named Light Watkins in Los Angeles. And I just thought I would do it as an experiment. And it was one of the greatest changes in my life. Very cool. So meditation is something you do twice a day. Uh anything else that you do habitually um you know throughout your day? Um I know this sounds silly, but FaceTiming my best friends, like every day, um, and not all of them, but I'll normally try to get in at least one or two. And I think that's important for me specifically because I actually do have a pretty isolated job. And that sort of goes back to what I talked about creating space. Sometimes I'm so by myself that I need to like FaceTime with my best friends um, to almost like tune my energy and to make me smile and have fun and feel myself. Do you consider yourself to be an extrovert or an introvert or an ambivert? Both. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's really awkward because, you know, if you read the book, you see, you hear all these stories of me, like on the price is right and jumping around and doing all these crazy things that are like an extrovert who had too much Red Bull. Yeah. And even when I met you for the first time, you know, we met at it's, it's the morning. Um, you have an energy about you and I don't even if it, I wouldn't call it an intensity, but, uh, a, a, a jovialness, uh, an enthusiasm, a passion uh, yeah. about you. Um, and, and seemingly a passion for humans, like, uh, a, a desire to connect with people. Um, so I was, I was just curious about that. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a funny combination between my mom and my dad. My dad, like super enthusiastic, love to talk. You can put him in front of a, a wall and he'll have a great conversation for three hours. <laughs> you know, he can just, he loves to talk and to spend time with people and extremely passionate. My mom is a huge, you know, great with people too, but a huge introvert, you know, will be working at the office into you know, three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, if she can, um, you know, wasn't too social and I'm the same way. And if you follow the definition of introvert and extrovert as introvert, um, 
gets energy by being alone. An extrovert gets energy by being with people. According to that, that definition, I'm an introvert. Mm. But when I am at, you know, breakfast with you and Cal, I, I do, I am enthusiastic because I love spending time with people. But after breakfast, I need to go sit in my car for 30 minutes alone and just like, right. Yeah, and introversion and extroversion is not my favorite topic. But the reason I brought it up was because when you described FaceTiming with your friends and integrating that in, I think about meditation as being more introverted. And then I think about the desire to FaceTime with friends as being I need to get energy from them and, and be around them. Um, so that's why I brought that up and it sort of struck me as a nice, yeah, it's funny, but it's like, there's like five friends on that list, you know, so it's like not, outside of, outside yeah. of that five, it like takes energy inside of that five. It gives energy. It's really funny. No, I think, I think a lot of people are like that though. I think that's why I, extroversion and introversion missed the mark in some regard, because I think most people, um, are very comfortable with people that they're very close to and get energy from those people and trust and can be vulnerable and can be themselves and all these other beautiful things. But then you put them at a cocktail party and they don't want to have anything to do with those conversations. Um, right. At least for me, I can speak to that. Like I'm great with the people that I connect with, but I'm not the guy who's going to go introduce himself to the stranger, um, you know, just to chat with him. Um, so, I, so I get it. Um, okay, let's go back to the price is right, which is where, you know, you mentioned the price is right. Um, so you decide, all right, I want to write this book. How am I going to fund it? I'm out of money. Um, so, so you, so I'm in the, yeah, I'm in the library Yeah, and someone posted tickets to the price is right on Facebook and I was filming the next day, but it was two nights before my freshman year final exam. So, you know, I told myself, you know, don't even think about it. But then I wonder, like, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this dream? You know, not my brightest moment, but there was something about that thought that it kept, like, clawing at my mind. So I remember sitting in the library and taking out the spiral notebook to make the best and worst case scenarios to prove to myself it was a bad idea. You know, I'd never even seen a full episode before. Did you keep a spiral notebook on you or that was just in your backpack or something? I, you know, I was just, a, I was just a college student. So I always had one in the backpack, but even though I've left, it's really funny when I was in college, there were certain habits I had to do as a student to just survive classes. But when I left college, I actually had to become more of a student um, because with the premise of this book, which is, you know, studying and tracking down the world's most successful people, I literally am a full-time student, just not at a university. So I, it's so funny because people, when I tell people I dropped out of college, they have all these assumptions that like, you know, I'm sitting on the couch, like eating Cheetos. What they don't understand is that I read more now than I did in school. I write more now than I did in school. I take more notes now than I did in school. And when you're quote unquote studying has, and you can relate to this big time when you're studying quote unquote has to do with the survival of your career. You take it a lot more seriously than when you're in, you know, biology one-on-one. Do you, as you were on your journey, how 
often was it that people you were in front of were also lifelong learners and were people that were also students. Um, and, and I'm just curious about that. Was there any correlation or, or not necessarily? Every single person I interviewed, 100, like there's actually not even an exception. There's not one exception. Um, when you're looking at the, at the echelon of like radical success, you know, the Gates and Buffett level, there's just no exception. They all are constant learners. And we should pause that thought for a second because these are the people that are literally considered the most quote unquote successful people in the world. And they are still in a learning mindset, which, you know, it's not despite they're in a learning mindset. It's because they're in a learning mindset. Mm. And I think that's a huge misconception that, um, you know, you'll see a lot of, you know, CEOs who are, you know, successful, but not Gates level talk about how they don't have time to read and they're, you know, packed with their schedule. But like I said, the Buffets and the Gates like carve out the time to read multiple hours a day. Yeah, at some point we got into this notion that busyness equals producti- productivity. And I think it's very Western in, in its, its thinking. Um, and certainly in the US, I think there is this notion that busyness equals productivity. And, you know, like I know for me in my job, and I don't know if this happens to you, but people all the time say, oh, are you busy? Um, and I always like cringe when they ask me that. Cause I know they're coming from a place of saying like, Hey, are you doing well at your job? Um, and I never really know how to respond to that. Um, yeah. because it's like, I, I want them to know is, Hey, is your job being productive? Like, is it impactful? Is it meaningful? Is it, um, are you having success? However you define it. Um, but busy right. is the question we ask, like, Hey, are, are you busy? Um, and it, it, especially for people that are on their own or entrepreneurial, it's like busyness equals productivity. And I love what you're talking about, which is the best performers in the world create space for themselves intentionally so that they can then be more productive. It's not they're doing it just to, you know, have nothingness or uh, they're doing it to then allow themselves to be 10 times better and 10 times more successful. Uh, when did that realization become clear for you? Hmm. I have a friend, her name is Dina Robertson, and she started this incredible yoga chain called Moto Yoga. And she has this phrase that goes like, busy is a choice. And that really resonated with me because something that I learned throughout the entire journey is that everything is a choice. You know, taking a risk is a choice. Um, Going after your dream is a choice. Choosing to not go after your dream is a choice. Doing nothing is a choice. And busy is a choice. We so often think of busy as a repercussion to taking opportunity. But whether you know it or not, you're choosing to see either A, see yourself as busy or B, make yourself busy. And, you know, you can, you can meet someone who's working 20 hours a day who can still consider themselves not busy. They can just see themselves as, you know, maximizing their time. 
So I do think it's a mindset, and I do think words contain power. Words like busy and stressed, I would challenge people to be very conscientious about how they use it when they're talking to themselves and to others. Because they do shift your energy, whether you know it or not. I love that. So what then allows you to choose to take this risk to go on The Price is Right? And uh, you know, you mentioned you hadn't really watched the show much, but you're like, oh, there's an opportunity to make money. Uh, let's go. I need money. This is here. What then gave you the fortitude or the courage to, to even go forth with that? So I think courage is, you know, one of the most important things. And well, to, to tie the end to that story, like we said, I'm in this, I'm in the library with my spiral notebook. I make that best and worst case scenarios list. And still it felt like there was this rope tied around my gut pulling me in a direction. So I did the logical thing that night and I pulled an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I said how to hack the prices right. And I went on the show the next day and executed this ridiculous strategy and ended up winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat, and that's why I funded the whole book. Are you and, were you always though? So were you always someone that once you did get an idea in your head, you were all in? Um, when I was a kid, it got me into trouble in school. Like my favorite activity in high school, for example, was student government. And when I would have an idea for like a student government activity, I would go all in to the point where like assistant principals would be calling me into the office and yelling at me. And, you know, teachers would be like writing me, writing letters to the principal complaining about me because I would just really go all in. And it's funny that when you're in an institution that has rules, and look, rules aren't bad. They're created for, you know, institutions to function or else you would have anarchy. But they also, you know, rules are meant to make sure you don't go all in on anything. They're meant to make sure you just check the boxes and, and walk along. So as a kid, I always had this tendency because I just get really excited about things. And it got me in trouble, but as an adult, I've realized it's actually one of my greatest assets. That when I have one thing that I am so excited about, I will just keep going. And this book is an example of, it's been a seven-year journey from start to end. And so when you get that passion or that excitement, are you focused on the, the vision and the ending, or are you more process-oriented? Um, uh, you know, both work. I've met different people that both work. If I focus on the process, I am going to give up. <laughs> like, and some people are the other way around. If they focus on the end goal, they'll get intimidated. For me, I don't know who said this, but there's a really beautiful quote. It's by some, it's a really famous writer. I don't know if it's Emerson or Ralph Waldo Emerson, but a really famous writer once said, if you have castles in the clouds, don't worry, that's where they're supposed to be. Mm. Now just keep laying the bricks one by one until you get there. And that's sort of been the entire process of this book. The entire vision of this, this really, you know, seemingly naive idea of this 18-year-old thinking, well, I'm just going to 
you know, get Bill Gates and Lady Gaga and all these other people, bring them all together and have them share their best wisdom with the next generation. That was my castle in the clouds. Because I just believe that if all these people came together and shared their best advice, young people can do so much more. So that was my castle in the clouds, that big, you know, in good to great, what do they call it? Big, yeah. goal, big audacious goal. Yeah. Big, hairy, audacious goal. Big, big hairy, <laughs> audacious goal. And I, and I love that because the word hairy actually like turns up the volume even more. Like when you think it's audacious, make it a hairy, audacious goal. Yeah. And to me, that's what motivates me to keep going after I get knocked down because I've been knocked down hundreds and hundreds of times over the past seven years to the point where, you know, it's been weeks in bed, unable to get out because I was just so devastated. But I just wanted this dream so bad that I eventually pulled myself up and kept going. So definitely a dreamer, somebody who has a vision, you use that word naive. Um, How does optimism and pessimism play a role uh, in your journey? It's a central role because optimism and pessimism are different sides of the same coin of possibility. Mm. And what I've learned is that the most powerful thing this journey has taught me is it showed me what's possible. And that's one of the most powerful things in the world because what I realize is that when you change what someone believes is possible, you change what becomes possible. And, you know, that's what changed lives. And it's what changed my life. So I think as I started reading this book, I was expecting to get a manual of wisdom and of, you know, here are the seven effective ways for you to uh, become successful. (laughs) And I think right from the beginning, you get that that's not what this is going to be. But as the book does progress, you start to get these nuggets and you can almost hear your voice coming out being like, Oh wow, that's, that's something I just learned from this experience. And it often wasn't exactly what the person told you, but it was upon your reflection of what the person told you or the experience you had while chasing them down or waiting in the office or, you know, being with them in a different space. What was your reflection process like after you actually did get the interview Uh, actually after actually meeting with them to um, unpack uh, the gems that that you found. There's a great saying that goes something like, I read to learn what I don't know. And I write to learn what I do know. Mm. And so often when I would start writing a chapter, I would think I know like, you know, I did these interviews, I would listen to the audio recordings, you know, for example, Pitbull. So I do this amazing interview for an hour and a half in his condo in Miami. It's a great conversation. I'm listening to the audio recording like the next day and taking all these notes. He said all these incredible things and gems and, you know, I'm highlighting things and I have, you know, pages and pages and pages of wisdom. And the hard part is, all right, how are we going to synthesize this into a story? And it's the process of writing what happened and how it impacted me that actually, that it always happens. One thing just comes to the top. 
And what I've learned, especially with the process of writing and storytelling is, and again, this goes back to the central theme of possibility. You can, you know, pack a book with as many tools and tactics in the world and someone's life can still feel stuck. But if you change what that person believes is possible, they'll never be the same. So every chapter was designed to subtly shift what people believed is possible without ever telling them that it's happening. So whether it's Sugar Ray Leonard, the boxer, or if it's Jessica Alba, or it's Jane Goodall, or Gates, they all are about shifting possibility in a very subtle way. And I would love to know from a process standpoint, what it did look like for, for you, because the pit bull one that you just talked about, like when you talked about that, I had the image of you standing in his condo over like with the glass windows where, Mm -hmm. you know, you talk about the lion King, uh, and you know, everything the light touches, but he, he talks about his school and, and the impact Mm -hmm. the school that's making. And so for me, that's very vivid in my mind, but you have to bring me there with you. So you record the conversation, but how much of the interaction was what you actually heard versus what you felt versus mm-hmm. what you thought versus what you saw versus what you tasted, smelled, the other senses? Yeah. Because I would imagine a lot of journalists, you know, the recording you always have, and some have the video, but what you're doing in the book is you're bringing me there with you. So I was curious how you were able to capture that to make me feel like I'm in the room with you. Cal Fussman, who's one of the biggest mentors in my life and who mentored me to write this on how to write this book. He's this incredible writer who I I know, you know, and Cal taught me a couple things. One when he was at Esquire, someone told him a great piece of advice, which is the good stuff sticks. And Cal got that piece of advice after boxes and boxes of his handwritten notes about an article got destroyed in a flood and he didn't know what to do. And the, and the writer just said, don't worry, the good stuff sticks. And he was right. And for me, I went into all these interviews without any video or photography. I had audio. So I wasn't worried about the audio. The audio, like in the book, when you're reading the interview with me and Bill Gates, all that is verbatim quotes because I had an audio recording. But all the visual stuff was by memory. I would pretty much my style would be I would go into the interview, try to be as present as possible and like mentally take photographs. And then I would leave the interview, go into my car like five minutes after the interview with a a notepad and write it all down before I forget. Um, and what I learned is that the things that stood out to me there were much more relevant to the reader than if I would have, you know, taken photographs and detailed notes while I was in the room. Because the stuff that sticked in my head for reasons I d- didn't understand stuck to me for a reason. And those were actually clues to how I would frame the stories. Like the Gates chapter, I know you know how it starts, like it's a great example. It's me like scanning his room, like searching for a clue to like 
how he became a billionaire. Like I'm studying his desk. I'm studying the color of his socks. Like, and that's, and what's funny is I don't start any other chapter that way. Cause that was only for Bill Gates that that all those details stuck in my mind. I can't remember what color Pitbull socks were, but I can remember the color of Bill Gates' socks. And it actually adds to what the experience was. Because you had this hyper sense of focus and this hyper awareness of, I need, this is, this is my Super Bowl right now, and I need to be hyper focused. Um, but you also talk about throughout the book and, and specifically with Gates is like the best questions end up being just out of curiosity rather than what you had prepared to ask the bride. And so I think there's an interaction you even share with Cal where Cal's like, Alex, leave, leave the notebook. Like just leave the questions, like just show up. Um, and I think it was actually with Waz that you were like trialing it out. Um, if I remember correctly, but. And it worked incredible, incredibly well. Yeah. So, um, what is, what is the takeaway for you? Um, as somebody who, you're prepared for, let's just use Gates as an example. It's your Super Bowl. You're prepared. You're taking in all this information. Uh, and then at some point you shift to just pure curiosity. Um, what is the lesson learned for you and, and how do you apply that in your life today? So when it comes to interviewing specifically, the best piece of advice I got was when I interviewed Larry King and he told me the biggest mistake people make when interviewing. And it doesn't matter if it's for, you know, interviewing for a new hire for a company or, you know, interviewing someone for a podcast is that they look at the people they admire, the interviewers they admire, whether it's Oprah Winfrey or Baba Walters or Larry himself, they try to emulate those styles. You know, Barbara Walters has those like very specifically planned questions in a perfect order. Oprah has all this emotion and enthusiasm and Larry asks all the simple questions that people are dying to know. And Larry said that is the copying those styles are the biggest mistakes interviewers make. And the reason it's such a mistake is because people are copying what they're doing, not why they're doing it. And Larry said the reason why he and Oprah and Barbara Walters have those styles is because that's what makes them the most comfortable in their seats. And when they're comfortable in their seats, the interviewee is most comfortable in their seats. And that's what makes for the best interview. So when are you or how are you the most comfortable in your seat? Um, and and it, even if there's an example of where you felt like you were at your best uh, from an interviewee standpoint, interviewer standpoint uh, in the book, uh, just paint that picture for us. So it's almost this narrative arc of my interviewing process. So I started out, you know, gripping to a notepad. And, you know, for a lot of the journey, gripping to a notepad with pre-planned questions, which I'd spent months researching. And Cal Fussman, whether he was conscious of it or not, sensed that I was doing that not because it made me comfortable, but because I was scared. Fear. Fear. And, you know, look, it makes sense. My fear wasn't irrational. I dropped out of college, pursued this dream of writing this book. You know, it took me two years to get this interview with Bill Gates. I had only an hour with him. I wasn't going to waste a minute trying to come up with this and ask the wrong question. Each question I had spent, you know, weeks honing. But Cal acknowledged that I was doing that out of fear instead of out of comfort. 
So he tried to almost throw me into the deep end and show me there's nothing to be afraid of by, you know, he would, he forced me. He sort of pulled the mentor card and is like, you have to trust me on this. Go into the next interview without any questions or without a notepad and see what happens. And I did it. I, I was very uncomfortable in the first 10 minutes, but it turned out to be one of the best interviews in the book. And then I did it a second time and it, that one also turned out to be one of the best interviews in the book. And what I realized is once Cal showed me that I don't need my notepad, I was then able to find what makes me the most comfortable. And what makes me most comfortable is actually a hybrid. What I love personally is studying relentlessly the person I'm about to have a conversation with. Not because I need to, but because it actually makes me more excited for the conversation. I love, you know, when before I went in to interview Quincy Jones, who's one of the final interviews, I listened to every single song he had ever made. I read all of his stories, which just made me more and more excited for the interview. Now, also that research helped me understand what I was curious about. So I already almost had this treasure map of areas I wanted to ask him about, but I didn't carry a notepad when I went in. I knew, all right, these are the five things I want to cover with him, but we're just going to have this amazing conversation and flow and you know, let my curiosity lead the way. So it's that hybrid that works the best for me because it's a combination of intense research, but also being extremely present to where the person is. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit. So I know you also do keynote speeches and, and, mm -hmm. and speak. Um, what do you like about speaking? And what do you like about being a questioner and, and interviewing people. And if there are similarities and differences, I would, I would love to hear you uh, mm. wrestle, wrestle with those two polarities. So when it comes to speaking, especially doing keynote speeches, whether it's at corporations or at business conferences, is that the whole reason I started this mission wasn't because I wanted to write a book. It's because I wanted to gather this wisdom, share it with the next generation, and help inspire people to believe in what's possible. How, how, how yeah. early was it that you established that mission? Was that from the get-go, or did that happen? Because you were clear on that just now. That wasn't, you didn't just pull that out of the sky just now. You're very mission-oriented. Uh, the first half of what I just said, which is to gather this wisdom of all these people to help empower others. That was clear from even before my first interview. That was the, the calling card. Okay. That was the, the North Star. The second half of what I said about inspiring people to believe in what's possible, that came at the end of the mission. Because only when the mission was done could I reflect back and understand what the, what the soul of it actually turned out to be. And yeah, it's been this incredible process and remind me again where we because we just went to yeah something. what was the question we we're doing before yeah I, i'm i'm i put you in another loop the question originally was keynoting versus interviewing right and and what that dynamic Ex yeah, is like for exactly. you. but i'm glad we went there because i think that came out and it was worth going there but now yeah we can go back and, and right so being mission orientated you know helps me make sense of my keynote speaking style in the sense that 
because the end goal of this never was the book, the end goal was the impact the book would have. Keynoting is extremely fulfilling because essentially what I'm doing is I'm turning the lessons and the stories and the experiences of the book and turning it into this live one hour experience. And the fun part is compared to the book where I'm sitting in my office by myself, incredibly solitary, you know, picking which word goes where, where each comma goes and try to, in my mind, imagining what that experience would be like for a reader. When I'm doing a keynote, I can see like transformations happening in front of me. I can see the whites in people's eyes becoming shiny and it's so fulfilling. And you, you know, after a talk, when people come up and share how it impacted them, it, it's almost like if my book was a seven year journey to impact the reader, a keynote speech is its own mini one hour journey to impact the audience. So it's incredibly fulfilling for me. And the other question you had about interviewing, it's become, when I started interviewing for this book, it was a necessary tool to achieve my goal of extracting this wisdom. My friendship with Cal Fussman and subsequently through the book with Larry King has made it almost this art form for me, which I really enjoy. So even though the book is done, for example, uh, very recently at a summit event in Los Angeles, I interviewed Jessica Alba in front of a thousand people. And it was this incredible event. You know, Jeff Bezos is sitting in the first row. It's just, you know, it was an incredible, you know, life moment. And what's funny is that it didn't feel like a keynote speech at all. It felt like almost a art form where it's a, for, for me, when I'm doing these live interviews, it feels like a cross between a conducting a therapy session, a a writing session and a keynote speech. The therapy comes from you have to be extremely present and thoughtful about opening that person up. The writing session comes from if you're doing it live in front of a thousand people, there needs to be an arc to what you're doing. So in many ways, you're also, you're not just an interviewer, you're a director. Mm. Because the person's following your lead. And the third, the keynote speech is you have to make sure it's entertaining too. So you got you you know you're laughing you're hitting punchlines because you're on stage and people are watching this so it's really fun for me mindset um, you were giving us some, some some of this but mindset when you're writing versus keynoting versus interviewing um, are are there similarities between the three of those from a from a mindset or mentality standpoint there are similarities. You know, they're very, then there's a, a ton of differences. There's, I, I would say there's actually more differences than similarities, but the similarities are pretty powerful. One similarity is that if you, the second you become not present, you fuck up. Mm. Um, and it's like a sport. So I would, I would say the similarities are not only across those three things, they're across any high performance 
um, job. You know, unlike emails, you know, your mind can wander and you can sort of get back on track. You know, if you're in the Super Bowl, the second you start thinking about, you know, what your your wife thinks of X, Y, Z, you just blew the play. And keynoting or doing an interview, if your mind starts wandering or in the process of actually writing like pen to paper, if your mind starts wandering, you've lost it. And that's why to me meditation has been so helpful because, you know, I don't, I've never been diagnosed or any, my, I don't even think I'm in that realm of ADD or ADHD, but I do have similar symptoms in the sense of when I was a kid, my mind would go a hundred miles an hour, a hundred different directions. Meditating has really helped me learn how to just train my mind to focus it on one thing. In a natural way, as opposed to a forced way. Yeah. So, how I got connected with Cal was that I'm in the process of writing my book, and and so Cal's like, "Oh, you got to meet this guy, Alex. He spent seven years." He's like, "Brian, you might have to spend seven years." And I'm like, "Okay, um, <laughs> we'll see how long it takes." But um, the the thesis of the book is that our mindset for preparation should actually be different than our mindset for performance. So the dreamer, the castle. You know, the castles in the sky, like that stuff's great in preparation. Um, uh, yeah, but, bingo. But really harmful if we're on stage with Jessica Alba. Um, so like... Right, yeah, 100%. Yeah, so like we have this idea that we should stay humble and like just stay humble. It's like, well, you should stay humble when you're preparing to go meet Bill Gates. When you're in the room with Bill Gates, be confident. Like know that I'm going to have the right question to ask. Or, you know, before I go to speak to Nike for a keynote, like be humble in your preparation and find out as much as you can. But then when you're on stage, be confident. And, and so I find that often we use words to say you should be like X all the time. We don't take the context into account. Um, so when you're describing writing, keynoting, interviewing, to me, that goes into performing. Um, you are performing right. in that space. And, but everything before that is in preparation. And, you know, learning, growing, all that stuff is important. But once you're actually executing, uh, it's, a, it's a different mindset. At least that's the framework that I've used with my clients. I resonate with that 100%. Cool. Yeah. Uh, all right. I want to shift gears a little bit to something that came up in my head when you were talking about keynoting uh, and seeing people's reactions. Before we fired up the, the podcast just now, uh, we were talking about ego. And one of the cool parts of your book is this relationship with Tony Shea, uh, the CEO and the founder, founder of, uh, or what he finds that? Or he was, he was a, the earliest investor. So, but he became the CEO very quickly. CEO, written book, you know, really well known for culture and leadership and a lot of different things. But there's a part where he talks about ego and vanity and, uh, like, make no mistake, like, part of his success is also because of his own selfish desire to feel proud or to have an ego. Um, so we were talking about that a little bit and I would love for you to share your perspective on that interact interaction with Tony and, and what enlightenment you might've gotten from that interaction. So Tony says had a, a huge impact on my life. And that part you're talking about in the book was one of the most impactful things he taught me, which is I had never met anybody who, and the context of this is I was meeting Tony Shea for the first time and he was talking to 
Asif Manvi, who used to be a correspondent on The Daily Show and is now a big comedy actor. And Tony was giving advice to Asif about how to market a book. And Tony was asking Asif what his end goal is. Because he was essentially saying, you can't win a war without knowing why you're fighting. Mm. And Tony was giving an example of like, look, I, you know, one of my ass, you know, one of my motivations for his own book, Delivering Happiness, is, you know, to inspire young entrepreneurs and help people for company culture. At the same time, I also had a bit of ego and vanity. And the second he said that, I was like, holy shit. Right? Like, no, don't do that. Like, we've been told, don't do that. (laughs) Right. When, and it's almost an implicit rule in society which is ego is bad, vanity is bad, we don't have that. And what I learned from Tony is that only when you can fully and honestly identify what's motivating you, even though society calls it good or bad, first of all, all those things are made up. In nature, there's no such thing as good or bad. Good and bad was created by humans to help us make sense of our world and you know it helps that we say murder is bad charity is good it like helps our society function um but they're not real things they're constructs that humans created you know a lion kills a gazelle is it good or is it bad you know nature doesn't have that so anyways tony helped me realize that it's You know, while ego and vanity might not be quote-unquote good things, what's worse than having it is having it and pretending you don't or lying to yourself that you don't. Because then you have no control over your actions and you can't effectively achieve your goals. It's an amazing thing. Like, I run into so many people who say that they're humble. Like, oh, I'm just humble. I don't really know anything. Then you're around. That's not like, humble. That's that's modesty. Yeah. That's 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 a facade of meekness. Okay, tell me more. What do you mean by that? So, one of the people I interviewed in the book was Maya Angelou, and Maya Angelou has this great construct about how there's a difference between modesty and humility. Modesty is a exactly what you just said, an external, oh me, I don't know anything. Oh little old me. You know, modesty is when you ask like a, you know, an amazing violinist, oh, can you play us a song? Oh, no, 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 I'm no good. No, fuck that. You know, that's modesty. It's a facade of meekness. And it's external. It's externally facing. Humility, on the other hand, is internally facing. It's what's cultivated within. Humility is knowing that and reminding yourself constantly that the position you're in in life is because people came before you who made it possible. Whether it's your grandparents or your ancestors who, you know, paid the way to give you this place in life, or if it's, you know, Barack Obama just acknowledging that he wouldn't be president without the sacrifices of Martin Luther King Jr. and the people who came before him. Humility is acknowledging that people before you have paid for you to be there. And it's a sense of gratitude that permeates from within. Mm-hmm. And mixing up modesty and humility is detrimental. You know, when people are saying, oh, me, I know nothing, and they call that being humble, 
they've botched it. And I'm curious how you blend humility with pride, because as you were talking, I was thinking about the word pride, and you're describing Obama. It's like, I'm proud to represent a certain people and Martin Luther King and stand on the shoulders of great men. I'm curious how you, how you think about pride. You know, I have to look at, it's one of those things on my phone, on the home screen, because I'm a nerd of the first, like on the home screen apps, I have the Merriam-Webster app because I, I like to look up actual, because I've realized in the process of writing this book that there's so many words that I use that I actually don't know the exact definition. It's words that everybody knows, but I don't know the like, what's the difference between like pride and, you know, something else. And I, for me, at least my definition, there's a difference between like pride, like our family pride and honor and stuff like that versus being proud of yourself. And again, it's, it's similar to the difference between modesty and humility in the sense that being proud of yourself, I think is incredibly important. People who aren't proud of what they've done. are doing themselves a disservice because if you're not proud of yourself, anyone else who's proud of you doesn't count. Richard Saul Worman, the founder of Ted taught me in the journey of the book that the only critic that actually matters is the one in your head. Cause if a hundred people around you are congratulating you saying they're so proud of you and you're not proud of yourself, which one actually matters? Which one do you hear when you go to sleep at night? So being proud of yourself is important, but being prideful from the definition I understand in the sense that, you know, you're, you're boasting, you're feeling like you did this on your own. You know, there's almost this, um, waving a flag in the air. I think that's extremely dangerous. Yeah. I, I mean, I chose pride cause it's a loaded word and, and it can go both ways. Uh, it can go both. Like I can be too proud to get help. I can be too proud, you know, for to ain't too proud to beg. Like there, there's, there's yeah, all, those. Yeah. The, that definition of the word, and many times, is actually the opposite of insecurity or the flip side of insecurity. You know, you're too insecure, and you know I've been there to ask for help. You're too afraid of how you'll come across. So pride is almost this. Uh, barrier or this pretense that we create to protect our insecurities. I would, I'm curious when you mentioned the Merriam-Webster app, has there, has there been a time where you have looked up the definition and been like, no, that's not right. Like, Oh yeah. All the right? time. Like that's, the that, time. they're miss that they need to update this. <laughs> um, cause, cause I think the same way, I think distinctions, you mentioned earlier that vocabulary matters, the words we choose to say to ourselves that we choose to present to others have meaning and importance. Um, but I also find a lot of times when I look in the dictionary, I'm like, no, that's not how I think about it. Um, I, how do you make sense of it? Especially when you're writing a book where you might be like, no, that's what I mean by that word, but maybe a dictionary says otherwise. Mm. What I've learned, and we talk about vocabulary, is that you know, I don't have the most robust vocabulary in the world, but I do have incredible intention, mm. especially when it comes to writing. 
when it comes to speaking, I'm much more free flowing and I might say dumb, dumb shit, you know, but when it comes to writing, especially with this book, there was a sense of gravitas that I felt when I finally got these interviews, you know, it took two years to get to Bill Gates. It took three years to get to Lady Gaga. And when I finally started writing out these stories in this book, I felt it would be completely irresponsible of me to just, you know, throw it all together and get it out there as fast as possible. This felt like, at least for me, a once in a lifetime kind of experience in the sense that these people trusted me with their, with their words and their reputation. And while I'm not even close to being the best writer on earth, I have to at least try to be. And in that attempt, I learned that every single word makes a difference. And if you're reckless with your words, you become reckless with your story. And if you're reckless with your story, you're reckless with your book. Mm. So it all starts off with the vocabulary used, even to the point where I would sometimes spend hours deciding, you know, if a sentence needed a comma there or not. And I know I have the luxury to do that, and not all people have that luxury, but it's something that I'm in. And I have been incredibly intent and committed to doing. But that's editing, right? Like that's different than writing from a mindset standpoint. Like in that space, you're trying to be perfect. You're perfecting the sentence. But like there's this saying, write drunk, edit sober. Um, like, Like to me, when you're thinking about hours of does that need a comma, does it not? There's a perfectionism in there. There's some maybe neuroticism in there. There is um, something that is not useful for you when you're on stage um, performing or when you're just, you said earlier, when I'm writing, I need to just be fully present and just go. If I'm somewhere else, then I'm not, I'm not doing the thing. Uh, do you consider that part to be editing? And is it a different mindset or is it similar to when you're writing? So there's no such thing as good writing. There's only good editing. Mm. So if you, I wrote the entire book using yellow legal pads. I didn't, the first draft of the entire book was not used with, no technology was used. So, you know, I wasn't consulting a dictionary. I wasn't looking up anything on the Webster app. Did you do that on your own? Did you do that on your own or did someone advise you to do it that way? One of the benefits of this journey is that I had to study the world's most successful people and what you naturally start noticing patterns. Tony Robbins has this great saying that success leaves clues. And what I learned is that, you know, Maya Angelou wrote all her books on yellow legal pads. Mm. Um, Jerry Seinfeld wrote every episode of Seinfeld with Larry David on yellow legal pads. Um, Barack Obama. So you, you might say, you know, Seinfeld and Maya Angelou are, you know, from the past, you know, before computers were a big thing. Barack Obama, they're the most digital president we've ever had wrote his speeches on yellow legal pads. So I was, you know, similar to transcendental meditation. I started noticing all these people who I admired doing this thing. So I became curious. So I just, and Seinfeld has this great bit about why he hates writing on a computer. You know, it's like, you know, the most hostile environment on earth. You're sitting in this very uncomfortable position. That's very unnatural. with Like your hands out like it, like an idiot. And this bright white light is shining in your face like an interrogation. It's as if you're like 
committed a crime and in a police interrogation. And then this little fucking <laughs> blinky line just keeps taunting you. Come on, big shot. Come on, big shot. Come on, big shot. You know, that is not a place for creativity. And I know most people do write on their computers and it works out great for them. But I'm in Seinfeld's boat in the sense that it is a very um, hostile, creative environment. So I just tried it as an experiment for a week. I think doing week-long experiments have been a huge benefit in my life in the sense of, I'll just try something. All right, what if I try yoga for a week? What if I try writing on a yellow legal pad for a week? And just seeing what happens. And most of them don't work out, but the ones that do are life-changing. And and mindset of an editor versus mindset of a writer. Um, What are are the mindsets needed for, for each of those, if they're different? Um, I'll tell you what worked for me. And again, the, the phrase writing is so tricky. I assume you're talking about first draft writing. Yeah. Like the first time you put a word onto a page. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go yellow, yellow pad. Yeah. Legal pad. Yeah. So in the course of the writing the book process, if writing the book is a hundred percent process, the yellow legal pad first draft process is about... 5% of the process. Mm. The Bill Gates chapter was edited 136 times. Only draft one was on the yellow legal pad. But if we want to focus on that, because that is a very important part of it. Because um, a lot of people don't even get to that part, right? Like, uh, we were, no, the, 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 yeah, the, the chapter gets good at draft around 70. Mm. <laughs> and then maybe draft 70 to 135 is honing it. But you really have your breakthrough around draft 70. Mm-hmm. Um, draft one is just you starting, which is why the yellow legal pad is so good because it's so non intimidating. You know, if you don't like something, you can rip it up, crumble up, throw it against the wall. You know, you can cross something out. It's very fulfilling that way and non intimidating. Got it. Um, yeah, I'm. It's so interesting that as you go through this process, you're picking up tips that then help you write the book along the way. My, of course, the everything I've learned on, I, it's weird to say, but I, I feel it. I don't feel like I'm the author of this book. I feel I'm the first student of this book mm. who just so happened to have to write it because nobody else was there to do it. The, there's there's something in you though. That you start off with the experience, uh, experience with Tim Ferriss and being, you know, maybe over persistent or maybe someone else would call it annoying. And so there's an element that you have in you that is willing to keep going. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious about the interaction with Ferris where he says you're being maybe over persistent and to stop doing that. But that is what got you in the door, maybe with Ferris. Um, and then I'm also curious, there's another time where, uh, Dean came and talks about frog kissing and that eventually you kiss enough frogs. One of them will turn into a prince and that giving up is cowardice. Um, so those two chapters, while different points in your journey, I was curious how you make sense of over persistence with kissing frogs. What, you know, I think the Dean Kamen chapter is the most great chapter of the book. He, for people who aren't familiar with him, he is the most prolific inventor alive today, um, has won, you know, every 
invention and engineering award possible. He created the Segway and the bionic arm and the iBot electric wheelchair and the drug infusion pump. Just this incredible inventor. The slingshot water purifier. Um, and what Dean Kamen taught me, something that I just learned throughout the book, is while you know, every business book talks about persistence is the key to success, there's not a disclaimer about the dangers of over-persistence. And what I learned and what came and helped me realize is that, and what my mistakes helped me realize, is that you can knock on a door a thousand times. And all that's going to happen is they're going to call fucking security on you and put a deadbolt up and reinforce that entryway. Or you can knock on it five times, no one answers, you know, go around, make friends with the bouncer. Okay, that didn't work. All right, go like make friends with the bus boy. All right, go check that window, see if it's open. There's a difference between knocking on one door a thousand times and trying, you know, 10 different ways, 10 times. Huge, dude, like monumental difference. Um, knocking on one door a thousand times makes you a nuisance. Knocking on 10 different doors 10 times Makes you pretty clever. I love that. And to me, the way I make sense of it is the difference between grit and grind. Uh, so grind is a word that gets used over and over. I joke that Akon even makes a song. I'm out here grinding. But you listen to athletes, they talk about grinding. Like golfers will talk about grinding it out. Or a hockey player will talk about grinding. Um, so this word grind has become pervasive in our society. Uh, and I think, honestly most people should shift from grinding to gritting, right? And like someone that's gritty is going to find another solution. And, and this is a big part of your book, which is why it's called The Third Door, is like, okay, I can't get through this door. I can't get through that door. Let me find another solution. Or I love what you just said, which is, hey, instead of just keep knocking on the same door over and over again, see if there's 10 other options that you can go toward. To me, that's more grit. And, you know, banging my head against the wall over and over again is grind. And I think in some ways um, we have made grinding just like busyness um, something that is glorified and glamorous. And the reality is that shouldn't be the way we want to live our life. We shouldn't live our life by grinding. I, I value hard work. I value blue collar work. Absolutely. But yeah. that's grit. Um, and so I think there's a difference there. Um, and I agree, you know, that whole difference between grit and grind is present in the entire thesis of the book. And, you know, the main analogy of the book is that life and business success is just like a nightclub. Mm -hmm. There's always three ways in. You know, there's the first door where 99% of people wait in line hoping to get in. You know, that's the line where the curves are on the block. And then there's the second door, the VIP door, where the billionaires and the celebrities go through. But what no one tells you is that there's always, always the third door. And it's the door where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way. And it doesn't matter if that's how Gates sold his first piece of software or how Lady Gaga got her first record deal. They all took the third door. And so it's not only the title of the book and the mission of the book. It really goes back to your whole premise of grind versus grit in the sense that taking the third door isn't about, you know, just trudging through the mud and banging on one door a thousand, ten thousand times, grinding it out. It's about being gritty and being creative, being proactive and finding a way because there's always a way in. And I think we, we also want to make sure that this distinction is made, which is, look, it depends on what your job is, right? If, 
like the old adage of a stone cutter that their job is to be precise and to knock the stone, knock the stone, knock the stone. And they know that eventually that stone will, will split. So there is a time to consistently work. And, and for you, I'm sure it's like, Hey, just write, just keep writing, keep writing. Um, so we're not saying you don't need to be precise and, and, and make sure that you're constantly putting work in. Um, but that stone cutter shouldn't feel like they're grinding away. They should feel like they're precisely just trying to hit it the right way. And there's art in that and there's beauty in in that precision. And I think that's a a distinction that probably needs to get made because I could see someone else saying, well, for some things you just need to put your head down and go to work. Yes, that's absolutely true. And and look, there may even be a time where you have to be on the prices right the next day and you have to pull an all nighter and you have to learn everything you can. And that might feel like a grind for one night. But we shouldn't live our life that way, you know, for the rest of our life. So um, I'm not saying that there isn't a time to necessarily, quote unquote, right. grind. But we need, need to be aware of, like you said earlier, we need to be aware of when we're busy. We need to be aware of when we're doing those things. Um, I want to bring up awareness in one other aspect, which is there. toward the end of the book, there's this interaction with Lady Gaga that is just, you don't know where it's going. You don't know where it's going to turn and how it's going to turn. And I don't want to spoil everything about it. Um, because I want people to read the book and have their own journey with it. Um, and hopefully everyone that's listening will read Alex's book. Um, but there is a, an, uh, a flipping that starts to happen where now you're not the one seeking advice, but you're now the one giving advice. You know, you're now mentoring rather than, you know, being mentored. You're now, um, you know, helping someone with their journey on their path. So I was curious what that felt like for you when you were in it and that you started to turn into the person mm. that was serving rather than being served to. It was incredibly surreal because, you know, Lady Gaga is one of the people I look up to most. I think what she's done, not only with her career, but the way her career has helped so many people who feel, you know, on the outskirts of society feel a sense of belonging and a connection to her art, I think is just unbelievable. And the way she launched her career was incredibly inspiring as a third door story to me. So I've always admired her. So when I went to go interview her, you know, I was completely prepared and so excited. And as you know, the the table sort of turned in the sense that she needs help that week. And what's cool is that it's not like I'm just sitting there giving her advice myself. What I'm really doing is I'm pulling from all the things I learned on the journey from Maya Angelou to Quincy Jones to the founder of Ted, all these people are, I was able to pass along their advice to her and seeing how it impacted her and how it brought her to tears felt like the perfect ending to the book because what it really did is it showed that it all came full circle. And in many ways, it was almost like my graduation from the journey, from learning to helping. Awesome. So I think that's a great place for us to start winding down. Um, So I want to give you a platform and a megaphone as best as I can to promote, obviously, the book, uh, which I know comes out soon. And uh, anything else that you're involved with or passionate about that you think deserves a megaphone. Um, So I want to give you the space to uh, (laughs) present that to my community and the people that listen to this podcast and uh, share what you're up to and and what you think deserves a megaphone. Thank you so much, man. And this is such a fun conversation. 
And that really is part of the mission as a whole, which is to share these learnings and this sense of possibility as far and wide as possible. And if people are inspired to want to read the book and if they're as excited as you and I are about it, it's available everywhere right now on Amazon and iBooks and Audible and all that. And that's very exciting. And if they do end up buying the book, you can go to my book website, thirddoorbook.com, T-H-I-R-D, thirddoorbook.com. And there's bonuses there for people who have ordered the book. Awesome. Uh, Social media, I know you're active on Twitter. Uh, Give us your handle there. Uh, I don't know if you're active on Instagram, but anywhere else where we can learn more about you and, and what you're up to. Yep, Instagram, social, you know, all, all the platforms of Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, it's all the same handle of at Alex Benayan. So it's just my name, A-L-E-X-B-A-N-A-Y-A-N. Awesome. And we'll put it in the yep. show. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, give me a shout that you heard, heard, of, heard through this podcast and I would love to hear what you thought. Awesome. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, my Instagram is intentional underscore performers. And then on Twitter, I'm at Brian Levinson. And Alex, man, like, I'm so happy that you kind this of- This is a blast, man. Yeah. Like, this is uh, super fun. And uh, once again, I, I'm sure you, you'll hear this a lot if you haven't already. Uh, I felt like I really know you and uh, you, you, we didn't even get to some of the personal aspects of your book, which I think are uh, make the book special, the friendships, the mentors, the family- Um, and, uh, you know, I think you've done some amazing stuff in the last seven years and, uh, excited to share that with my community as well. And, uh, thank you for the time today and looking forward to many more intentional conversations with you as well. Thank you, man. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Richard Saul Warman, the founder of Ted taught me in the journey of the book that the only critic that actually matters is the one in your head because of a hundred people around you congratulating you saying they're so proud of you and you're not proud of yourself which one actually matters which one do you hear when you go to sleep at night so being proud of yourself is important but being prideful from the definition I understand in the sense that you know you're you're boasting you're feeling like you did this on your own You know, there's almost this um, waving a flag in the air. I think that's extremely dangerous.